a lot of what drives me is just the desire to share something with others and make other people happy. Uh, there are some musicians that feel like they have a, a message that they want to share that's that's about the music itself, or that they simply want to conquer this mountain. They want to they want to learn uh, every piece of music that Johann Sebastian Bach ever ever wrote for the organ, uh, or they want to play every great organ in, on the planet, things like that. But for me, I've never really been driven by those things. It's more that I just get a real sense of um, satisfaction out of making people happy or helping them to solve problems or deal with, with issues through, through music. Welcome to the 466th episode of The Cultural Hall. We've been around almost a decade. You can find us online in all of the social media spaces at The Cultural Hall or theculturalhall.com. We do news, we do interview episodes, we get deep, we get fun and silly and all the things because that's what you do in the cultural hall. It's a multi-purpose room, if you will, and we appreciate that you have taken the time to start to listen today. Now, coming up in this episode, I visit with Richard Elliott. He is the organist for the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square, and I have to give a huge shout out to Alan Blodgett, who helped us coordinate and get this interview going. I don't know why I keep putting this off. Let's get started on this episode of The Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, and, uh, you know, Richard Elliott is here, and uh, by here I mean technologically here. He's somewhere else. I'm keeping him safe. He's keeping me safe. But I, I wonder if it is a move on your behalf, Richard Elliott, organist for the um, Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square, uh, that you have those gold records in the background. That's pretty intimidating to even start out uh, with this whole thing. Yeah. No, this happens to be the conference room for the Tabernacle Choir, which is about the quietest spot uh, here right now with all the construction going on. So the, it's uh, it was not intentional, but... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're a little bit intimidated. <laughs> well, and I, you probably have counted them, or certainly someone has counted them, but it is countless, almost, number of gold records that the choir and, and subsequently your work has been a part of. Uh, yeah, there are so many that we yeah we can't keep track of them all, and uh, you know they keep uh, almost every time they release a, a recording, it goes to the top of the charts, and um, we're just glad to have a following and and. Uh, I'm just glad to be along for the ride. So uh, we'll get to know you a little bit, but I am curious how that ride started. Uh, you have been with the choir almost 30 years, so take us back to, I'm assuming, right around 30 years ago uh, when they said, hey, why don't you come play this organ for us? Yeah, well, at the time I was teaching organ at BYU, I, uh, I went there in 1988 uh, when I was uh, wrapping up my doctorate from the Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York. And um, I'd been there teaching there for, for two years at BYU, uh, working mainly with our group organ instruction program, which was designed to, to crank out as many organists as we could, you know, <laughs> taking people who had piano skills and then um, giving them the tools to become a decent church organists and then also teach others how to do that. So it was a really a fulfilling um, job and I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. But after two years there, I got a phone call um, from the Tabernacle Choir offices uh, saying that Robert Kundick would be retiring in the next year or so and asking if I would be interested in being considered for the job. And uh, 
of course, I was just thrilled and honored by that. But it, it was a hard decision because I enjoyed the teaching so much. So it took a little while just to decide that I, I wanted to um, throw my hat in the ring. And then uh, the, uh, the auditions came a few months after that. And then I, uh, I got was interviewed by, by President Hinckley. And uh, he basically told me that I wouldn't start working for over six months from the date of our interview. And so I had to keep it quiet from everybody except for my uh, immediate family and then joined the choir organization in, in May of 1991. And I've been here ever since. I have to wonder, and, and maybe some of it is uh, sacred and not to be shared, but I do have to wonder, what does an interview for being the organist for the choir sound like? Uh, it, it was a great, great experience um, talking to you know, both President Hinckley and then I was interviewed by the, um, um, the president of the choir organization, Wendell Smoot at the time. Um, but, but President Hinckley, I, I always had just the greatest respect and reverence for him and just to be in his office uh, with my wife and talking to him for at least a half an hour. I don't remember exactly how long. Uh, it was just, just wonderful. And he, uh, he, uh, he'd known many of the previous organists. He had stories to tell. Uh, he, was, he was reassuring, but at the same time, it was um, sobering just to, um, to be in that spot and uh, you know, to, uh, to talk to him about the responsibilities and, and about the, uh, the history of the choir and, uh, and what it meant to the church as a whole. You know, it's a fascinating thing when when you think at young, uh, maybe Ricky. Uh, were you a Ricky when you were very young, or a Rick? Oh yeah, I, maybe you were. Well, you're Richie now, but yeah, I was definitely a Ricky when I was younger. When you look back at young Ricky Elliott, did you ever think that this would be where your life would lead to? No, no way. No, I uh, I loved music as a kid, but uh, never really thought I'd make a living at it. And then even after I decided to make music uh, my my career. I really wanted to be, become a studio musician in, in New York or Los Angeles and just never dreamed that anything like this would be a possibility. And I was not a member of the, the church at the time, so that it, it really was uh, way out of the, the picture. Uh, but then the, the same week, actually, that I graduated from college with my bachelor's degree, I was also baptized, and that opened up some different uh, windows and different perspectives. And so I, I went on a mission to Argentina a year later, and when I came back, I thought, well, maybe I should, you know, see see what I can do with this. So I ended up going to graduate school, and then and things kind of fell into place. Yeah, you've just summarized your entire life in about forty five seconds. So I'm going to make you <laughs> pick some of those pieces apart because I'm curious. How is it that you found uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints? I, I had some classmates there. I was a student in Philadelphia at the Curtis Institute of Music, and um, had several classmates who were members of the church. Uh, one of them was uh, you know, was a stake missionary uh, in those days, and um, he was a tuba player there. We're still good friends, and uh, so he took on the job of of teaching me, uh, which was good because I was a little intimidated by the full time missionaries who were from <laughs> from Utah and Idaho, and they they were so different from my friends, my circle of friends, and I wasn't one hundred percent comfortable talking to the missionaries. So fortunately, my friend. Uh, gave me some of the discussions and uh, answered my questions. And there were just so many things that uh, that felt right and uh, that made sense to me. Uh, I've been raised in another church. I, I was a Christian and uh, I'd always wondered things like, you know, why, why does our church not have any prophets and apostles? Uh, why, uh, why don't we 
have some of these these practices, and uh, I always sensed that uh, that I had lived someplace before I came to this earth, mm. and that this was just a you know a, a passing stage here. So all these things, like the plan of salvation and the church organization, the baptism for the dead, even you know all all the you know, the vicarious work that goes on in the temples, everything just just made sense to me, uh, and uh, I uh, just just. I, I felt like I had to do it. I got to a point where I thought I know enough and I really believe that the church is what it, what it uh, uh, claims to be. And, and so I, I took, the, took the plunge and I haven't looked back since and uh, had a wonderful mission to Argentina just a, a little over a year later. And, uh, and then I've been on this, uh, this amazing ride ever since. When you talk about the, the conversion process for you, People will often say, "We, well, you know, I'm I'm still being converted." Uh, that's not what I'm referencing to. But from when you first were sort of introduced to the church to the time that you were baptized, were you pretty quick? Were you hesitant, but knew that that was where you would end up? You just wanted to check some boxes. What was that like? I, I if I were going to draw a graph of it, it would be just a very gradual upward slope until the last uh, few weeks, and then it took a big. Uh, you know, went went up very very quickly because before then I still was um, was just feeling like I wasn't ready for it and uh, I still had a fair number of questions. But then I got to a point there um, just a few weeks before I I was baptized where my friends basically said, "You know everything that you need to know to to make a decision. Now it's it's up to you. You have to make that call and you have to make it a, a matter of prayer." Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I'd said prayers before, but this time I knew that this was a prayer that was really, uh, really important. And so I, I, I gave it my all and kind of followed Joseph Smith's example of, um, of you know, not doubting. And, uh, you know, they talks about in his uh, regarding the first vision. And uh, and then I just felt just a, a warmth and I felt a, a feeling that this was something that I could do and should do. And um that I would never know unless I, I actually, you know, step, step forward and, and took on that, uh, you know, that new way of living and that, that, that new, uh, the, the whole thing of, of membership in the church. And, uh, so, uh, it really, it, everything kind of registered at that point, everything mm-hmm. made sense. And even though the months that followed after being baptized, I had lots of questions still, and I had, um, uh, had some adjustments to make as far as just getting used to the, the cultural aspects of the church and, and understanding how things worked. It's, it was uh, everything reconfirmed uh, my, my feelings uh, about the, the veracity of the gospel message. It's so interesting to me when we talk about um, conversion and when we talk about, you know, Joseph Smith and, and especially that prayer in the sacred grove, I, we, we deal with it with such reverence, right? Because it was the time when he was able to see God the Father and, and Jesus Christ. And, and with, good, with good right and respect, we think of that. But in the scope of your own very personal life, you look at that time that you prayed as to whether or not you should join the church, right? Your friends essentially say, hey, you've got all the information, pray about it. How impactful was that decision that then you made to, to join the church and, and, and um, follow the promptings of the Spirit? I think sometimes we look sort of outward and go, oh, yeah, absolutely life-changing. But each of us have those opportunities to have those experiences where very individually you can look back on that and say your life is completely different from that one or couple prayers that you uttered before you ever joined the church. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. It, it's it's amazing to see these points, these spots in our lives where where everything hinges on just a single decision, like the person that we marry, mm-hmm. or or a decision like this one. And uh, you know, I think sometimes we're tempted to wonder what would have happened if I had gone a different way. And um, but you know, in, in this case, it felt right at the time, and it's 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 uh, felt right. And I've I've just um, you know, I've always felt that I just needed to give it my all. And uh, the New Testament messages, the, the Savior's teachings there in the Book of Mormon are very clear just about the importance of enduring to the end, despite uh, any trials and challenges that come up. And so I've kept that at heart. And uh, I'm grateful that my parents were those kind of people, too. My dad was a, fought in the Battle of Bulge in World War II. Mm. Um, he was a very quiet uh, man didn't talk a whole lot about that or about his feelings, but uh, he was just steady and constant and uh, just believed in following through on your commitments. And uh, and uh, I, that that really uh, made him, to, to me, it, it made him a great person and it brought so many blessings to him. I could see that. And so I, I felt that I, I should do the same with my decision to join the church. You're, what you were describing just a moment ago, it's sort of because of the time of the year, probably, maybe I would think of it anyway, but that George Bailey moment where we think, did my life matter? The the, the whole essentially plot of it's a wonderful life. You know, it, it, what would it, it, would the world be better off if I hadn't been around or what did what is the impact that those one or two decisions made? So I want to ask you, lots of people that um, when they're when they're younger, uh, still of eligible age to serve a mission, join the church and decide not to serve a mission. Perfectly permissible, a, a great way to go for all of those folks. What was it that made you decide, hey, now not only do I know that this is true, but I got to go teach the people of Argentina? Yeah, I, I think I was different in that I, you know, I was raised in a, a different church, and every Sunday the— uh, the uh, New Testament would be read from the pulpit. And I just remembered a very young age hearing the, the scriptural passage where Jesus um, said, come follow me, I will make you fishers of men. We had a, we had a missionary um, who, from our congregation who uh, was a medical missionary. She was a doctor in India. And mm. so she spent most of her time in India and she would come back every few years and report to the congregation. And I always thought, I wish I could be a missionary but I'm, I'm, I'm not cut out to be a doctor. I don't think I'm really cut out to go and live in India for the rest of my life. But I just thought, how could that possibly be? What was, why would Jesus ask something like that if it weren't a, a possibility for, for, uh, for the members of, of the church or the rank and file? And so when I joined the church right away, within weeks, I just felt that was an answer just to those, uh, those longings that I had had as a child. And uh, and so I was I was probably the happiest missionary <laughs> in the MTC because I thought you know, I'd been waiting uh, so many years uh, without even having any hope or even understanding. Whereas a, you know, a lot of the missionaries there were were happy to be there. They had grown up in the church and uh, knew that they were doing the right thing. But I, I had a, a different perspective on it, I think, because of being outside of the church. If people ask you um, to share a mission story. What uh, when you think of a mission story, whether whether it's faithful or or silly or scary or whatever, what's a mission story that you could share with me? Oh well, but my favorite mission story uh, really was I had been um, been there for almost a year and had not heard any organ music at all. I'd been in small cities and 
uh, in our chapels, we had little um, reed organs that you pumped with your feet or, mm -hmm. or pianos or, or electronic organs. And uh, so I'd just been transferred to a new area in the mm -hmm. biggest city, the, the, the city of Rosario, which was the headquarters of the mission. And we were tracting and um, walked past the church and heard the sound of a real pipe organ being played inside. And I was just thrilled and I stopped and listened. And my companion just nudged me and said, why don't we go inside and, and check it out? And I, I just didn't feel comfortable with that. And he, he persisted. And as we were walking up the stairs, one of the priests came out the door and, and my companion said, uh, he said, my friend here is an organist. We're from the United States. And we just heard the organ. Is it okay for us to go in? And he, he said, fine. He showed us where the stairs were up to the balcony where the organ was located. And uh, we walked up the stairs in the balcony and, and stood there. And then the, the organist sensed that we were there. He turned around, stopped playing. And in perfect English, he said, elders, what are you doing here? <laughs> and, uh, it turned out that he had taken the missionary um, lessons or discussions eight or nine years before that and had taken English lessons with the missionaries and just felt a real um, kinship with the church, but, but had never joined the church. And so he had been there kind of on his own for years and years. And suddenly two missionaries show up in his organ loft. So we became fast friends. We're still friends uh, many, many years later. And uh, he, uh, he ended up uh, getting me into a lot of different churches there to play the organs and uh, on our, our P days and, and, uh, uh, that was a, a neat experience, a little little blessing in the middle of all the all the other work that we did. What is it about the organ that got you so excited? You said you were sort of raised on music, but you know, lots of people like your friend the tuba player would kind of go that way, or a trumpet is what attracts them. There there aren't a lot of kids, I don't think, and maybe I need to ask more kids who say an organ. That's what I want to play. That's my thing. Uh, yeah, for, for me, I had always heard it in church on Sundays, and uh, I started playing the piano when I was six years old and, and loved the keyboard and the feel of the keyboard, loved the sound of the piano, and just the organ kind of gradually became something that interested me, but, but the pivotal moment really was in um, ninth grade. Uh, we had to do a project for my English class, and I got the idea of doing something that involved the, the pipe organ in our church. Uh, and you're playing a piece and uh, to accompany some the reading of some poetry. And uh, so I, I called up the, our organist and said, uh, I'd like to do this school project. Is it okay for me to come in and, and uh, horse around on the organ? And he said, sure, I'd be happy to help you out. And so while I was doing the project, I actually played a piece from pictures at an exhibition by Mazorski that I'd been playing on the piano. And uh, uh, the pastor came through just at that time and heard me playing. He said, why don't you play that in church this, this Sunday? And uh, so I said, fine. And I got a little coaching from the organist, ended up playing in church. And a few weeks later, the organist took, uh, wanted to take Sunday off. And so he asked me to play for the whole service. And I did that and made a lot of mistakes, uh, but somehow got through it. And then uh, a couple of months later, he, he resigned and the, uh, the pastor asked me to take the job. And so I I was 15 years old. I had a paying job. It paid pretty well um, for a 15-year-old. And so that, that was really how I got started. And then in college, I still wasn't sure if that was the path I wanted to pursue. But I thought that uh, if I got a degree in organ playing, there were a lot of options uh, that didn't necessarily involve playing in church. At the time, I thought I, I might want to uh, be a studio musician. I mentioned that earlier mm -hmm. and uh, thought uh, the organ will give me some background in music theory and uh, if I 
get a degree in Oregon, I can get a job playing in a church on the weekends and then pound the pavement during the week trying to drum up work in, in studios. So that was that was the plan when I started out. You know, my fingers were crossed a little bit, uh, Rick. So I hope it's all right that I call you Rick. Maybe I should call yeah. you Richard. Uh, my fingers were crossed, Rick. I was hoping that it would be um, the inspiration for the organ would be like some early music from The Doors or some of these these songs from the mid to late 60s that have just that very, uh, you know, rocky church organ that have inspired so many people to kind of do that. The fingers are uncrossed. I know now where your history comes from, but I appreciate you sharing that with me. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back in the, in the second block, I want to pick it right back up where you just left it, uh, where you're going to college and making that decision that's like, hey, this is it. This is Richard Elliott's life. We'll come back and do that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Hey, this is Dan the Laptop Man from PC Laptops. It's our ultra-mega back-to-school blowout sale. We have hundreds of thousands of dollars of ultra-high-quality laptops and desktops on sale for up to 50% off the original prices. We've got demos, scratch and dents, trade-ins, and funny-colored computers. It's crazy! Remember, you get a lifetime service guarantee on any PC Laptops brand computer. That means if you mess up your Windows or you get a virus or spyware, it's covered forever. Got an old yucky computer? No problem. We'll take it in on trade and we'll transfer all your pictures, music, and all your stuff to your PC Laptops computer for free. When you get your computer from PC Laptops, we'll make sure you're taken care of for a lifetime. To make it impossible to resist, we're doing 12 months special financing on any PC Laptops desktop or laptop computer. Have I lost my mind? Get into any one of our locations right now or check us out at PCLaptops.com. PC Laptops, where computers start at $7.99. PC Laptops, we love you. In the second block of the Cultural Hall, I need to let you know that that is Go Tell It on the Mountain. That is from 2008, and we will talk about that great number from our guest Richard Elliott right after I tell you about. If you are a Patreon subscriber of the Cultural Hall, you actually get to see the video that we are recording today. Uh, Richard at his place over at the conference center where he's hiding from all the construction going on at Temple Square and me from my studio uh, being able to see the behind the scenes you can only get if you are a Patreon saint. You can go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall 
And you can pledge anywhere between 3 and $10 a month to be able to enjoy that great content, in addition to being a, uh, a member of the secret but not sacred Facebook group that we have for all of our Patreon saints. So, uh, Richard, Rick, Little Ricky, Little Ricky Elliot, I don't know what to call you. That is an amazing song that I shared, that Go Tell It on the Mountain. Um, and you have to say mountain, especially if you're in Utah. You can't pronounce the T's. <laughs> you got it. Let me hear the story about that. Where, where, why, how, all that. Um, in 2008, in late summer, um, I had an, an accident and uh, uh, had a severe injury to my left arm. Hmm. And uh, it required surgery, uh, and there was some concern over whether I'd be able to continue playing or continue my career after that. So it was a, a really trying experience. And um, the surgery was successful, I'm, I'm happy to say, and, but it did take about three months to um, regain full strength of my left arm. So during that period, we were coming up on the, uh, the annual Christmas concerts of the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. And um, at that point, I, I was, um, had already started this annual tradition of having an organ piece on the concert. So I was thinking, what am I going to do if my left arm is not completely healed? Uh, we were getting closer and closer to that date. And so I was tinkering around in one of the practice studios here uh, on the, one of the smaller organs and um, got the idea of writing a piece that where the, my two feet uh, played a lot of the piece just by themselves, where the left foot was playing the bass line and the right foot was playing the melody. And then later on, it was uh, the, both hands joined in, but it was mostly the right hand and the feet that were doing all the work. Left hand was able to just kind of uh, glide, glide through without too much effort. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that, that was the solo Goteld on the Mountain, and it was very, very well received, and I felt really good about it. And uh, as a result, it's, it's had a lot of views and, and uh, something that, that I, I'm just glad because it, it it kind of it it represents the um, the philosophy that it, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade, mm -hmm. and you just do what you can to make the best of the situation. So during that during that period, when uh, a lot of uh, practicing just with my feet alone and and honed my pedal technique a little bit more from what it had been before the accident, uh, gathered music for, that was written for feet alone, and um, just took full advantage of of that time to to keep moving forward. Yeah, a, new, a unique time and one that as you probably look back, you can remember, you know, the question, the frustration that you were facing, the hard work that went into that particular thing. That's cool. And to see that it pays off in a way that people really love watching too. You mentioned that it has a few views, over a million views of people checking that out online. And we'll leave a link for that in the show notes of this episode so that people can see that. Now, when you go to college and you sort of queued this up, but I just want to ask you right on the head, when you go to college, I, I feel like, and, and I don't know that it's necessarily just within the church, but when we talk about things like the arts, um, I am a child of the arts. I, I got, got a degree in theater, but in the arts more than any other discipline, um, we face something in our collegiate training where we go, am I really going to do this or should I settle for the thing that will provide for my family? or more easily provide for our family or, you know, what, whatever that is. What, what is, obviously you chose to follow the organ. What is the, what is the importance of following that thing which we are so passionate about? Well, I, I remember a story about uh, a man bumping into um, Yasha Heifetz in Central Park in New York City. And the man said to Heifetz, I just want to thank you because um, 
years ago, you heard me play the violin and I asked you if I should, should do it as a career. And you just told me that there was no, no passion in my playing. He said, I, you know, so I, I gave up on that and I, I've gone into, I think it was insurance or something like that. And, and I've had a good life. And, and, uh, Pifett said to him, well, the thing you don't understand, sir, is that I tell everybody the same thing, that there's no, there's no passion. And I figured that the ones that, uh, that are going to make it are going to stick it out regardless of what, uh, what I say and, and what, uh, you know, what, what may discourage them. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's one way of looking at it. But for me, I, I did actually get out of music for a while, several times uh, during my education, when I felt that maybe it just wasn't viable and just kept getting dragged back in more by other people than, than by my own feelings. And so I, I'm very fortunate that way and that other people recognized that uh, there was some potential there and uh, encouraged me to to stick to it and the uh, you know the last time that happened i had finished my master's degree and was working uh, full-time in a library uh, at the university uh, in in rochester new york and got a phone call from my my uh, organ professor and he said i want to take you out to lunch and over lunch he said there's somebody who's willing to pay for your doctorate and uh, anonymous donor and uh, that was enough to make me feel that you know Maybe there was something to this, and and uh, I, I took that as a sign that uh, that was really where I belonged, and and right away just felt uh, felt fired up, and and uh, so things have, have worked out ever since. Now, where does family and significant other and all that where does that play into this equation? Um, well, at the time I was I was single then, and uh, and so I got married soon after that. My my wife was a classmate um, at, there at at uh, the Eastman School of Music. And uh, but my parents just loved loved music and uh, always encouraged that. My mom drove me to piano lessons without fail. My dad uh, always enjoyed you know listening to me play anything I wanted to play. So they were very encouraging, even though they you know they said they would have supported me in whatever I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but they never really tried to push me in another direction. They always said, "We'll we'll stand behind you, uh, whatever you choose to do." So that that makes a big difference to have supportive parents, have a supportive spouse. And, uh, so that, that's made a big difference to me. And then I'm sure that along the way, even after the doctorate, there have been some difficult times. Has it been that you look back on, on that young you serving a mission and, and finding that way through the church, that it's a, been a calling of God? Your wife saying, come on, Richard, get, get back to it. You need to get back to it. What has kept you going in the hard times since then? Uh, I, I think you know, a, lot of, a lot of what drives me is just the desire to share something with others and make other people happy. Uh, I, there are some musicians that feel like they have a, a message that they want to share that's, that's about the music itself or that they simply want to conquer this mountain. They want to, they want to learn uh, every piece of music that Johann Sebastian Bach ever, ever wrote for the organ, uh, or they want to play every great organ the, on the planet, things like that. But for me, I've never really been driven by those things. It's more that I just get a real sense of um, satisfaction out of making people happy or helping them to solve problems or deal with with issues through through music. And this year, especially with you know the pandemic, um, it's been a, a tremendous blessing for for the organists here, my colleagues and I, to uh, to be able to do the the live stream piping up recitals we're doing here um, while the choir is is still on hiatus. And uh, we've gotten so many emails and calls and, and letters from people saying that uh, that music is just the one thing that brings them hope, 
and helps them get through the day and helps them deal with their their worries and concerns. And uh, so all along, that's really been the thing that's that's um, that's kept me in it. And uh, I, I'm, I'm thankful that I've been able to make a difference in, in people's lives that way. Worth footnoting, tell people about those recitals if they've never heard of them and haven't had the opportunity to watch. What are they? So starting back in, in July, uh, or actually it was June, I guess, that we, we uh, began doing three live streamed recitals a week from Temple Square, the Tabernacle, the Conference Center. This week they happen to be in the Assembly Hall. Um, so we've been you know going around between the different organs. But they take place at uh, 12 o'clock noon, uh, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. They run for a half an hour, and they're, they're broadcast on the choir's YouTube channel and also on the choir's Facebook page and then on the church's um, broadcast uh, page as well. So people can find those links on the, the Tabernacle Choir's uh, website, which is the, uh, thetabernaclechoir.org. And um, we, uh, we've always had these noon recitals uh, on Temple Square for over 100 years, uh, with a live audience, but uh, we have not had an audience, obviously, since back in March here. And after several months of having no recitals at all, uh, I spoke with the choir's administration, and, and we all agreed that this was something that uh, we could explore. And it's been a, a, a real success uh, so far. We're, we're grateful to have the, the viewership. It's an interesting thing within the church. I think that we take for granted what we have. And I think that you're one of the things that we take for granted. And I know you to be a humble person. So get ready to get a little uncomfortable as I pay you a tremendous compliment and that you'll just be like, oh, okay, don't, you know, don't shine the spotlight on me. But you are a sought after organist that has played all over the world. Can you share some of those experiences about um, playing either with other groups or particular organs that... I know you haven't sought out to play all of them, but they are significant experiences that you've had. Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Those have been wonderful uh, memories for me. And, um, you know, of course, Europe is, is still the mecca as far as pipe organs go. And I've been fortunate to play um, in a, a number of countries in Europe, both with the choir and as a soloist. Um, a year ago in the summer, I was in England, played at St. Paul's Cathedral in London, which was a, a remarkable experience. Also played at Selby Abbey up in Yorkshire and then um, Coventry Cathedral, where, where a good friend of mine was the organist. And then finally at Hyde Park Chapel, which has um, which is just legendary among organists in the church because a number of them cut their teeth there or, you know, uh, uh, sort of paid their dues. Uh, Robert Kundick, uh, whom I replaced at the Tabernacle, had been an organist there for several years mm. back in the 1960s. A uh, number of friends of mine over the years have, have had assignments there. A number of the Tabernacle organists actually had assignments there. So it was great to finally have, an, have that uh, opportunity to play that organ. I uh, played in Germany several times, Switzerland. Uh, I was in Ghana, Africa a couple of years ago. There are uh, very few pipe organs there, so we used an electronic organ. But I, I played for several uh, choir festivals there and did some solo work as well. And that was uh, a culmination of a life stream to to set foot on the African continent. Uh, and then Israel, uh, one of the most amazing organs in the world is actually in the BYU uh, Jerusalem Center uh, on uh, Mount Scopus overlooking the old city of, of Jerusalem. And uh, the organ by itself is a gem. It's, it was built in Denmark by the Marcusen firm. Um, but the, build, the, the auditorium in which it's, it's located uh, has all glass walls mm. and the audience is seated on sort of on a slope there. So they're looking at the old city of Jerusalem out the windows while the organ is behind them playing. 
and for an evening concert uh, with the lights on in the auditorium, it, it appears that the organist is literally dancing on the rooftops of Jerusalem, <laughs> which oh, is a, wow. a really cool experience. Uh, so those those are just a few few uh, great memories from from over the years. It begs the question: Is there that white whale out there? That one organ that you have not been able to travel to or or be able to experience from a from a player's perspective? That man before before Richard Elliott sheds this mortal coil and and heads on to the next one. That you've you've got that that one thing that you need to do. Well, I, I don't know. I've, you know. I've never really sought out uh, um, any of these. They've all kind of dropped in my lap. So the only one that I've thought of is uh, I'd always thought it would be kind of neat to play at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris and was actually go- about to explore that through some contacts I had when, tragically, when the cathedral caught fire. Uh, and um, so I'm, I'm hoping that maybe after uh, it's put back together and the organ has been cleaned up and reinstalled that I, I might have that opportunity someday. But if I if it doesn't work out, I'm, I've still had just a, a great uh, a great ride and I'd be fine without that. Is there something heavenly about so, you know, we think about the temple being God's house on earth and we go and, you know, we make the covenants and promises there. And that certainly for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that is that very thing. Is there a certain, um, reverence is not the word I'm looking for, is there a, a certain um, feeling, that's the wrong word either, but we'll go with feeling for right now, that as you as you enter these, in some cases, um, thousands, in most cases, at least hundred-year-old uh, houses of worship where people have come to know God and come to know Christ, is there something uh, spiritual in the nature of just being there and then being able to play this very worshipful heavenly music? For sure. I think that's that's the appeal of the organ is it's not just a concert hall. It's not just a you know Steinway piano. Um, these organs have history and these buildings have history. And uh, there have been many people um, through the centuries who have worshipped there and who have taken their burdens to to the Lord there and um, and uh, receive comfort there uh, through through the music, through the building, through the worship. And so, yeah, we, we definitely, I'm speaking for all organists, I think we all feel a reverence for those environments. And uh, uh, we, we consider it holy ground and uh, a, a, of a different type from our temples for mm-hmm. different reasons, but still, nevertheless, uh, uh, holy places. And we, we feel, feel it a privilege to to set foot there and, and to add to their their music programs. I want to take a break. We'll come back in the third block. There are three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I'll ask those of you. Plus, I have just kind of some random things that I've wondered about the organist that plays with the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. I will get back and do that in the third block of the cultural hall. When I was in high school, maybe ninth grade, 10th grade, I uh, really wanted a ring in a different language, specifically a CTR ring. And I can't remember what language it is. People will know and they'll email me contact at the cultural hall.com. But uh, it, I think it said Pat. 
I think that's the how the initials CTR translated in this particular language. So like I was being the edgy guy, right? The edgy CTR guy. It sounds ridiculous, but there are so many different options for CTR rings, whether you've got someone in your family who is of baptism age or someone much older who just needs to remember to choose the right or maybe a great gift. You get one of those fancy CTR rings for your significant other. You can hop online to LDSbookstore.com. Best part, you can engrave on the inside like love you always or you're my right or whatever the thing is that you want to do to send that message a great gift idea is a ctr ring hop online to ldsbookstore.com Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, uh, thank you so much for finding your way to the Cultural Hall. It's been around a decade and encourage you, if you love this episode, and I don't know how you couldn't, to share it with a, a friend, someone from uh, your ward, maybe a family member, and say, hey, have you heard about this thing called the Cultural Hall? And my hope is that their response is, yeah, where have you been? But if that's not the case, that they go, oh, no, I'll definitely have to check that out and be able to enjoy it. Um, you can find us on all places where you find shows available in podcast form uh, and on all the social medias at The Cultural Hall. So won't you please find us there? Now, that song that we played as we were coming back is called Hot Pipes. Uh, that's you with the orchestra at Temple Square. Let's talk a little bit about that song. Sure. Yeah, I don't re recall exactly what year that was, but it was uh, in the uh, Pioneer Day concerts. Just uh, you know, Mac Wilberg always comes to me ahead of those concerts and the Christmas concerts, and we we talk about possibilities for the organ moment. And for that one, just because of the programming, um, this particular piece that I had heard about was a, a really good fit. And it turned, it ended up going, going well. And uh, I, what I enjoyed about it is that um, because I grew up hearing a lot of jazz, my, my dad loved jazz and Dixieland. I've always kind of dabbled in that on the side. And uh, this particular piece, Hot Pipes, is uh, uh, it's one, part of a four movement um, jazz concerto for organ by a Canadian composer. And uh, uh, it uh, each of the movements brings in a different flavor, but this particular movement, Hot Pipes, is kind of in a ragtime style and just, just uh, seemed a good fit for the concert. And uh, again, it, it was well-received and, and I had a lot of fun doing it. So now I just want to ask you a couple random questions because I've just always been curious. Are you able to turn off the organ so that if your foot slipped during general conference or something like that, we wouldn't get the loud as your foot hit a pedal? Is there a way to sort of silence the organ? 
Yeah, well, the, the quickest way is there's a little button on the right hand uh, end of the bottom keyboard that's called a cancel button. That just, it doesn't turn off the air blowers. It just pushes in all of the, the stops on the side so that um, even if you brush the key, it wouldn't play. Uh, and we could go one step further to be extra safe and turn off the organ uh, completely. But in the conference center, that organ takes a whole minute to power up because it has six separate air compressors or blowers and um, they are they, they go off in sequence because they trip the circuit breakers if they all turned on at once. So, so we were careful not to turn off that organ unless we absolutely have to, because if we, if we suddenly had to turn it back on, we'd have to sit there looking at our watch for, for a minute before it would even be playable. I've always been curious about that because I have to think that over, you know, you've been with the choir for 30 years, there had to have been even if it was non-intentional and just like a foot twitch or something like that, that you would brush a pedal and then if noise came out, it would be, you know, the speaker is like, hang on, turns back to you. Richard, are we all right? Are we all right back there? And be able to to focus on the meeting at hand. Uh, Another curious question that I have is in the time that you have been the organist, there have been a couple directors, certainly with Craig Jessup before uh, Mac Wilberg, who is there presently. If you want to hear an interview where uh, Mac and Ryan just sing the praises of Richard Elliott, you can listen back to an old episode of the Cultural Hall. It's episode number 320. Um, so you can tell that the the love and appreciation is mutual. What was that transition like going from Craig Jessup to Mac Wilberg? Yeah, so each conductor definitely has a different style. So when I first came on board, Gerald Otley was the, the music director and Donald Ripplinger was the associate director. And then uh, Craig Jessup came on and, uh, and uh, Mac and eventually and Barlow Bradford for a while was there. So each one has their, their and Ryan Murphy, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So each one has their own uh, style and it does take a while to sort of figure that out. And um, you, after a while, you just kind of listen to what's happening with the choir and the orchestra and the organist has to kind of find where they fit within that framework. And it's especially challenging in the conference center because everybody's separated by so much space over there. So the organists are way off on the corner of the stage and the orchestra is between us and the choir. And then the organ pipes are actually behind the choir. So they're even farther away from us. And since sound waves travel relatively slowly, we're hearing things at all different times. And we have to kind of figure out how to split the difference and, and, uh, and fit things in there. But as far as the conducting styles go, yeah, each, com- each conductor has a different conducting pattern, and you end up kind of figuring out where in that pattern you need to make the beat fall. Um, it's different for each one. So some, some of them are more, a little more expressive. Some of them are more, uh, do more timekeeping. Um, some of them are more specific about when the cutoffs are. And uh, so, so you, you just uh, you learn it. Any orchestra player will tell you the same thing, that uh, it, it takes a little while. And uh, when you, especially when you have a guest conductor who you only have one shot to work with, that's when you're really kind of on edge because uh, you haven't had a lot of time to learn the ins and outs of their, their patterns and their style. And that's a very technical approach. I, I think I, in my mind, was thinking even just the different personalities between those three gentlemen, you know, they're three not the same people. And, and so to, to know how they, how they would work with the choir and the exposure and the different events that would happen during that time and, 
the ideas of collaboration or, you know, if it's top down and here, just play this, Richard. And however those might be throughout the time, it, it's a it's a fascinating thing. I have to tell you one of my favorite stories ever. And I think that you can appreciate this. I will be short because this is all about you, but I think you'll get a real kick out of this. I attend church in the Salt Lake Stake. So our stake conferences or I'm sorry, our region conferences take place in the assembly hall. And so you're familiar with the assembly hall. Uh, where the organ is, it's kind of up and back, and there's a little bit of a of a vi- of a line of sight issue from the organist to that person who is conducting. Well, in my last regional conference, you know, we have our our conductor is a he's a PhD, you know, teaches at one of the universities, but he also just happens to be in the stake, so he takes his calling very seriously as he conducts. Well, we are a lay church where the organist doesn't find themselves necessarily in that professional capacity, but is there just doing their best that they can. And the conductor is up and conducting, but the organist is not able to keep up, right? They hadn't had the practice time that they needed. And so about halfway through the song, the conductor leaves where he stands and goes back to the organist and apparently has some sort of conversation, uh, as as best as I can interpret from the audience, and comes back and tries to pick back up and very intentionally sort of leads, you know, with bigger, broader things as if to be more visible to the organist, then stops, goes back (laughs) to the organist. (laughs) This, all while the song is going on. It was a longer, you know, closing number or opening number. And it goes back. And then you can, he comes back for the third time to continue to conduct. And you can just see the frustration on his face. And after about, I don't know, maybe four or five measures in, you see him flip the baton and walk... (laughs) down the stairs from the assembly hall and out out into Temple Square. And it was one of my favorite moments of the, we need to follow the conductor, so gospel, <laughs> gospel principle, but also like the everyone's just doing the best we can. We need to have patience. But I just, I love that story so much. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I feel for the organist because we, we really do have a hard job because you're uh, often you're hidden in the assembly hall. They can't even see the conductor directly. They have you have a little TV monitor there, mm-hmm. and there's a camera mounted up on the organ. And so we're we're trying to manage this organ that has all these different devices that can, and a lot of which can go wrong. And uh, you're trying to make your feet go at the right time and your hands go. And meanwhile, you're looking at this tiny little TV set or mirror or looking out of the corner of your eye to try to follow the conductor. Uh, and stay with the congregation or the choir. So I, I, my heart goes out to organists everywhere who, who uh, you know, have had that experience of, of not being able to, to be in sync uh, with everything. And, and I've had a few frustrating experiences like that myself. So, so it's, it's a challenging instrument to play, but, uh, but these things happen. Uh, that that is a very kind way of saying what you just said. I think it, it it is phenomenal what you do. Being able to to hear you play in person it is and has been one of my favorite things. I haven't been able to do it. You mentioned sort of the the yearly uh, number that you do with when the choir is performing that you have set it up so that there is just that organ number. I I don't know where you came up with that idea. Maybe I should ask you, where did you come up with that idea to do that just sort of solo organ number? Well, the the original genesis was way back in the 1990s. I did a, a solo, uh, Bring a Torch, Jeanette Isabella, during a, a choir a Christmas concert in the Tabernacle at the time, and uh, it was well-received. And so, but I, the, the real genesis was um, back in 2006, Craig Jessup was the music director and came to me and said, we've got a moment in the Christmas concert where we have some dancers 
the need to get from one level to the other level. Uh, and we've got to do a quick change of scenery at that point too. So he said, could you come up with a piece that's maybe two minutes, two and a half minutes long that could be played there and give us a, give us a little chance to, um, to get things reset and get people moved around. And so I, I said, great. And so I came up, I found a piece that was published, uh, written by another composer based on a French uh, or uh, Catalonian or something, uh, Carol, and uh, played that. And, and it was very well received. And just the fact that it was a little breath of fresh air in the middle of the concert, you know, you suddenly had something different from, from choir and orchestra. So, um, so Craig said the next year, let's do the same thing. But this time, why don't you write it? Because uh, then we don't have to pay all the royalties <laughs> and it's a little less complicated when we get to... Uh, putting out the DVD and the CD and the, and the PBS program. So, so that year I, I came up with a setting of, uh, I saw three ships and again, it was, it, it went over really, really well. And so that just kind of started the tradition and, and it's just kind of been expected ever since. And um, I'm just worried about when I, when I retire, I want to be sure that, that that can, can continue to, to happen. So I'm, I'm working with my, my colleagues here and we're, we're having a, uh, sort of Christmas organ solo school. <laughs> and um, I, I hope that that's something that can be, be continued long after I'm, I'm gone. Is retirement a consideration at this point? Obviously you will at some point, but is it something that you're looking to a day and or time? I don't have any set plans at this point for, for right now. Um, uh, I'm still enjoying what I'm doing and feel like I'm, I'm able to do it. So I, I figure I'll, I, I do want to bow out close to the top of, of my game and not to stay much longer than, um, than would be prudent. And that's, that's a challenge for all musicians as it is for athletes or anybody else where, where, you know, the body starts to give out and, um, cause problems. So I, fortunately I have, uh, friends who are very, um, uh, very good at, at uh, telling me, you know, when the right time is for things and, and who are very honest with me. And so I'm relying on them to tell me, hey, you know, it's time to time to start thinking about retirement. So but so far, nobody said anything to me yet. So I'll, I'll keep it up. Now, in years past, I would think that your schedule looks a lot different than it does this year. Um, you are prepping for a live concert that likely has, uh, you know, a, a guest artist of note. I can't remember who it was to be this year. Had we announced it before COVID shut everything down? No, no, they, they had not uh, signed any contracts or engaged anybody. Uh, so, so yeah, obviously those plans went by the wayside. And for the PBS show this year, that'll be the broadcast of last year's concert. So that's already in the can. Uh, for next year's, we have some plans um, and we're actively working on those right now. And I'm actively working on an organ moment for that program. But that's all I can say about it right now sure. is that uh, we, we, we do have a game plan for the PBS program for next year since there won't be live concerts this year. And then for, for next year, we certainly hope that we'll be at the point where we can have live concerts again and the choir will be back uh, functioning by, by December 2021. But your schedule certainly, I have to think, looks different because you don't have the multiple nights at the conference center this holiday season. You don't have you know everything that entails those concerts, like you mentioned, that would just be on Temple Square and and the guests that are coming there, all that has gone virtual. How are you finding yourself transitioning this year into the holidays and being able to get a part of the spirit where so much of it has been attached to these performances, these different things in years past? What is what does Christmas time look to you this year? 
It looks like the first Christmas in, in years when I'll be able to actually send out Christmas cards. <laughs> uh, oh, and so, um, so I'm looking at the positive side of things, which is that this year I'll be able to have a Christmas. It's a little bit more like those that my non-musician friends have. Um, you know, Christmas is a, it's a double-edged sword for a musician. It's, it's, um, you know, it's wonderful to be involved in all, making all that wonderful music but it's exhausting, it's stressful, uh, and uh, there's often is very little time left over for, for family, for, for, for the things you know, that you wanna do, like giving gifts and, and uh, you know, sending out cards. And, and uh, so we're, you know, as a family, we're, we're kind of looking forward to that. My wife and I are empty nesters now as of a week ago, so our, our youngest son just left on his uh, mission a week ago and so it'll be a different christmas with just the two of us uh there and and uh, possibly our, our older son from california but uh we're we're actually looking forward to it my wife is the ward choir director this will be the first christmas in ages that she hasn't done a special uh sacrament meeting program or handles messiah we we generally did uh, uh the christmas portion of messiah every other year with our ward choir with her conducting and me playing the organ so we won't have any of that this year so we're, we're going to just enjoy having a little extra time. And we've used that time this year for other things. And we've had some family emergencies that we had to deal with. And so it ended up being good that we didn't have the, the extra uh, responsibilities this year because of the, the pandemic. It'll create for many uh, a Christmas not soon to be forgotten. And I like your positive outlook on it. Uh, I have the three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall, but I have one more question. Just a curious thing. I don't know that you have a key to the conference center. I'm going to assume in my mind that you do and that you can go there after hours when no one else is around and there's no one in the conference center and you sit down at the organ. What is the song that you play? Empty house. You just want to sit down and play it at the organ. What's that song that you play? Well, I, I can answer that <laughs> authoritatively. Yeah, so we, we can go in there all hours. And um, so in in the conference center, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I do crank it up when nobody's there. But I, my most memorable experience uh, really uh, late at night was back after my arm injury that I mentioned uh, between the time of the injury and the surgery when I really was very worried and uh, didn't know how things were going to pan out. I came into the tabernacle with my wife late at night. Uh, when it was closed to the public and uh, sat down with the lights all dimmed and um, with my arm in the sling as best I could, I played through Come, Come Ye Saints, which is our, which we play for all of our daily uh, organ recitals and uh, just felt a, a sweet reassurance that, that things were going to be okay. Uh, as I played that, thinking about the pioneers that had built the tabernacle um, and built the facade of the tabernacle organ um, it was just a, a wonderful moment, really one of the most spiritual moments I've had. And then on top of that, uh, after I played, I looked over to the north out the windows of the tabernacle and could see the, the Christus statue uh, in the North Visitor Center, just you know, glowing white uh, with the lights on it. And, um, and just the, between those two feelings, just felt a remarkable sense of, of peace and of, of comfort. And I know you know, not every person on the planet or even member of the church can have that experience of being in those buildings uh, late at night. But that that was a, a great moment. And uh, I felt felt that Heavenly Father was speaking to me in, in a, a very clear way and that we can all uh, hear his voice, regardless of, you know, of where we happen to be, um, that uh, he'll tailor a message to our, our situation and, and circumstances.
I appreciate you sharing that. A pretty sacred experience. And and that uh, is one of the things I'm, I'm most curious to see as they change up everything from Temple Square. Where will that Christus be? And, you know, looking forward, it, it, it is a Christmas tradition for me to kind of gather at the feet of the Christus statue in the North Temple and uh, North uh, Temple Visitor Center and sort of do a check in. Right. I come there year after year and I go, hey, been a while since I've been here. Here's what's going on. And and it really is one one of the most sacred spots on Earth. So I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, all right. The three questions we ask everyone, Rick, everybody who steps in the cultural hall asks these or answers these. The first one is, do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it? I'm the ward organist. <laughs> That's it. And and of course, ministering brother. But uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm the ward organist and choir accompanist. And uh, um, I'm teaching occasionally in our elders quorum. I'm teaching a lesson this Sunday. Um <laughs> But word organist is, is my calling right now. As, a, as an artistic person, do you ever wish to, because I'm, so I'm theatrical, as we, as we mentioned, like sometimes I'm like, give me, give me the clerk job. They always give the artistic people the very artistic sort of oriented thing. Give me, a, give me a records clerk job. Have you ever wished or wanted to do something that was completely unrelated to what you do during the week? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I, I have had some other experiences, but when I came here to the tabernacle, uh, we were discouraged, and we were uh, we were discouraged from from accepting uh, callings that would take uh, extra time, and um, and we're actually encouraged to talk to our our uh, priesthood leaders. And th- there's a letter that goes out uh, every year or so to all the choir members, all the members of the organization, saying this should be this person's primary calling, and if they do have another calling, then they'll need to be released to take that. So we ha- we have people who are sometimes who who get a a uh, a temporary release to to become a, a release society president, bishop, something like that. That takes a lot of time. All right. The second question is, is: if you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? My favorite calling of all time still is primary pianist. I I just love being in primary and uh, seeing the enthusiasm that and and uh, just helping them to sing and um, it, it's just a, a, a neat neat place. So I I've enjoyed that. I uh, was on. Stake High Council for a while and enjoyed getting a different perspective on how how the church works. Um, and uh, but I yeah you know, I I'll take I, I'm happy to have uh, as many calling as many different kinds of callings as possible just to just to um, have the growth and have the opportunity to serve in that way. So I'm I'm not real picky. <laughs> the last question we ask everyone, and we also say interpret this question however you will, however you wish to respond. The question remains. What is your favorite part of your faith? My favorite part of my faith? I, uh, boy, that's really hard to, to pin down. It's almost like asking what my favorite piece of music is or composer, because there's so many wonderful things out there. But I, I think, you know, it's really the, the individual worth of, of, um, uh, of, of each of Heavenly Father's children. I, I loved Elder Uchtdorf's talk when he said, to God, we are everything, and to God, we are nothing. And I, I think that this this church, better than any other church, really um, makes that clear that um, we have a long way to go. That we're expected to be perfect. We're uh, as Jesus is perfect, um, and we ha- we need to set very high standards for our conduct and um, and uh, for our, our spirituality. But at the same time, the Heavenly Father loves us, and he, we're His children, and we have divine potential. And um, we're truly, you know, children of God, and uh, that uh, He's grateful for for all of our efforts, and that through 
the atonement and through uh, through the Savior's grace that uh, we we can be saved and and exalted. And so I I just see that that pull between those two poles as being something that really is part of human nature and something that um, that we all benefit from, uh, as opposed to thinking that we are worthless mm-hmm. at the one extreme or that we're fantastic uh, all around and don't need to change. And so that's my favorite part of the church. Well, Richard, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we read.